And thank you for reading for us. As Christina mentioned, my name is Jesse, and it is indeed my great joy this morning to open up the Bible and to explore it with you. Before we do that, though, why don't we just come before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Father, please bless us. We want to hear from you. Please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform our hearts to be more like Jesus. Help us to see everything that you have for us to see in this passage. Father, we ask that you will speak through the Bible to everyone gathered here this morning, both in person and online. Please help us. Amen. Before we get into our passage, I'd just like to tell you a little, a little bit about one of my Bible college lecturers named Alan. He's this Kiwi guy, an orphan, actually. And God really used him to help me to see the goodness and magnificence of God, a big impact in my life. Something about Alan that everyone who knows Alan knows is that Alan loves chai lattes. Whenever I sat down for a coffee with Alan, he would both order a chai latte for himself and try to convince me to also order a chai latte. Everyone, even in his lectures, he would talk about chai lattes. In his sermons, sometimes he would mention chai lattes. And one time he shared with us a story. Alan's this amazing guy, right? Bible college lecturer. He would preach at his own church, counsel people. And in his holidays, he would travel to Nepal and teach in Bible colleges in Nepal. Amazing, godly man, right? He shared with us this story. He said, one Christmas, he's sitting around the Christmas tree with his family, and everyone had presents. And this year, he'd gotten six, well, he'd gotten more than six, but he'd gotten six particularly special presents. He's gotten a present from his friends in Nepal, present from Bible college people, present from church, present from friends, present from family. And he shared with us that as he opened those presents, his heart fell more and more. Because as he opened them, the first present he opened, and it was a mug. Because everyone knows that Alan loves chai lattes. He opened the second one, and it was also a mug. And the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth were mugs. And Alan wasn't disappointed that he had six mugs. He loves chai lattes after all. But he said that in that moment, his heart sank because he felt like he had failed in one of his major goals in life. One of Alan's major goals in life is that when people think of Alan, they think of Jesus. That his life would so reflect the glory and beauty and magnificence of Jesus that the first thing in people's minds when they think of the name Alan is Jesus. 
And Alan felt like the first thing that people think about is chai lattes. And uh, he actually said that after that, he made an effort to talk about chai lattes a little bit less and about Jesus a little bit more. But uh, that's an interesting question to ask. What about you? Do others see Jesus when they look at you? When they see what you do, how you react to things, when they hear what you say, it's not impossible to reflect the magnificence of Jesus through our lives. And today, in our passage, we're going to explore one key way that we can reflect the glory and magnificence and beauty of Jesus in our lives. And also, where we can find the power and motivation to follow the example of a perfect and sinless God. So we're going to break it up into two two bits. We're first going to look at the command that God gives us and then at the motivation that Jesus provides to help us to obey the command. To properly understand our passage, though, it's important that we understand what the broader situation is. Scholars generally agree that this letter was written during the time that Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And uh, this is the same Nero who announced that Christians were enemies of the state and had them rounded up to be tortured and killed gruesomely, thought up all kinds of different terrible tortures for Christians. History tells us that during his reign, thousands of Christians were killed. And one of the major themes of this letter that we're looking at this morning is how Christians, followers of Jesus, should behave when we are wronged. Our passage really drills into the heart of that question. How should a follower of Jesus behave when we are wronged? We're going to spend almost all of our time in verses 18 to 25, uh, but our passage is a practical application of an instruction that we find in verse 12, just a few verses before. Verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, live such good lives among the pagans, meaning non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus yet, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Peter, the writer of this letter, really believes that actions speak louder than words. And he's saying that the life of a genuine Christian should be so different from that of a non-Christian that the contrast between the two is obvious. So what will this look like? How can we practically be distinct from those around us? And that is what our passage really explores. It explores one of the ways that Christians are supposed to be different 
from the people around the world. Starting in verse 18, it says, slaves. And the Greek word here can actually mean servants. But the point is that he's speaking to people who are under authority. He says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only, and this this is crazy words that Peter says, not only to those who are considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable, he says, if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. He continues saying, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Commendable is this big word. It means praiseworthy. These are really heavy words. Basically, Peter is saying to us, that we, as Christians, need to give up our right to be treated fairly and justly for the sake of showing Jesus to others and for the sake of the glory of God. This is no small matter. It's, it, it's easy to be kind, big-hearted, when other people are kind to you. But the point is that as Christians, we are to be loving when we are treated with the opposite of love. We are to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus points out that even worldly people love their friends. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And in Jesus' day, tax collectors were thought of as some of the worst, most corrupt, most wicked people in Jesus' society. Jesus says that the point of difference between a genuine Christian and a person of the world is that a genuine Christian will be loving to someone who is unloving to them. Which is so contrary to our broken Sinful human natures. But Jesus is asking us not to remain in our broken, sinful, selfish state. He's asking us not to continue perpetuating the brokenness and conflict that has plagued humanity since we rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. When we rebelled against God, we didn't just break the perfect, glorious, vertical relationship with God that humans had enjoyed. We were designed to enjoy with the ruler of the universe. We also broke the horizontal relationships that we were designed to enjoy with each other. One of the very first things we read after Adam and Eve rebelled against God is that they turned on each other. Well, Jesus is calling for us to do more than just love those who love us. He is calling for us to live as the new and restored humanity. 
He's calling for us to live like him, to forgive our enemies and to repay them with love when they give us wrong treatment. There is nothing or just about nothing that is more contrary to our human nature than to not stand up for yourself when you are wronged. It is so easy to counterattack when you are attacked. But Jesus did not live like that. And he's asking us to join him in putting an end to the endless fighting which humans have been engaged in since we rebelled against God. This in part is what makes us different from the people around us. In part, this is what makes us the people of God. This sets us apart. The Bible word for being set apart is to be holy. And and this is part of what makes us holy. God is calling for us to be walking, breathing advertisements for his glory, his goodness, his mercy, his forgiveness, his love. And a big part of how we do that is by responding with love to those who treat us wrongly. Just in case anyone's sitting there thinking to themselves, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a servant or, or a slave. Just jump forward to the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. In the same letter, God says through Peter, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with a blessing. Because to this you were called, that you might receive a blessing. This instruction isn't just for servants or people under a wicked, tyrannical government like, like the people in Peter's day. They're living under this wicked, tyrannical emperor Nero. This instruction is for each of us here in this room this morning. Anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. The underlying principle applies to each of us. When we are wronged or mistreated. So what does this mean? What does this look like in practical terms? What does it mean to live a life where you show love to others even when they treat you unkindly or unfairly or unjustly? One obvious application is in family life. I grew up with three younger sisters, who I love deeply, by the way. But uh, I know firsthand how easy it is to treat someone, especially a sibling, the way they deserve after they've wronged you, right? And, and we, we will be wronged. You will be wronged. Because you live in a broken, sinful world. And because sin lives in everyone else just like it lives in you. It's so easy to treat your partner, husband, wife, or your family members, or your 
close friends or your acquaintances or even especially your enemies the way they deserve. But Jesus is calling us to a higher calling. He is inviting us to live as the new and restored humanity. He's inviting us to live as humans were designed to live at the dawn of time. And he's calling for us to lovingly choose to prioritize other people more than our own rights, especially when they wrong us. In regards to this matter of how to treat others, God spoke through Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, saying, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And he's speaking here specifically about relationships between followers of Jesus, but the underlying principle applies to what we are talking about this morning. Jesus is calling for us to give up our rights for the sake of others. Another extremely obvious way that we can do this is in a workplace situation. Often bosses or co-workers, I'm not talking about Ben here, um, or anyone at Oasis. Actually, I love working at Oasis. I've had no conflict, praise God, which is really rare in a workplace, but um, often bosses or co-workers can behave in, let's call it frustrating ways. I, I've lived this reality in previous workplaces. I've been in a workplace where a co-worker intentionally sought to make my life miserable. This is real. We are often faced as humans with the choice of how to respond to those who wrong us. And Jesus is calling for us to show them respect and to, show their, to, to, to repay their unkindness with kindness even when they don't deserve it. Actually, especially when they don't deserve it. Jesus is calling us, inviting us to a higher path. He's inviting us to put a stop to the cycles of revenge which have plagued humanity since we rebelled against God. And not in a fake way where we kind of, maybe we say the right words, but our body language and our faces communicate that we don't actually love the person, but in a real, genuine way to repay people with love when they treat us wrongly. There's lots of young people in church this morning because we're in the holidays. If you haven't been already, you will almost certainly be wronged by another kid at school. This issue is just as real for you young people as for people who are 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and more. Jesus is calling for us to love even when we are wronged and we will be wronged. He knows that we will be wronged. And in our passage, he's helping us to understand how to act when 
we will be wronged. Jesus is calling for us to be so forgiving, so kind, so loving in all of our interactions with others that they cannot help but notice that our character reflects like a mirror the goodness and forgiveness and love of our Savior God. Our restoration as the people of God, it isn't just supposed to affect us in the vertical sense, in the sense of our relationship with God. God wants it to affect our horizontal relationships, relationships with the people around us. This is part of what it means to be citizens of heaven. We are freed from the need to desperately fight for ourselves and for our own rights. Because we have a champion who has given, who has fought for us and won for us everything that we will ever need. At the end of our passage, Peter reminds us that we have a shepherd. He calls it a shepherd of our souls. We have someone who is looking out for us, who has, as we just learned in our Revelation series, written our names in the book of life and promised that our futures will be filled with eternal joy. We no longer need to fight for ourselves like orphans in an orphanage that doesn't have enough food. No. We have been promised everything we need by the all-powerful king of the universe. When Jesus was being arrested under false pretensions by the wicked and corrupt powers of his day, Peter who wrote this letter that we're reading now, he pulled out a sword and attacked the evil people who were arresting Jesus. And he managed to cut off one of the ears of one of the men before Jesus stopped him. Stop, stop, Peter. And then Jesus healed the man. We read in the Bible, he actually picked up the ear and healed the man. He did a miracle for Jesus' enemy. before Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and then eventually killed. Everything we read about Peter in the biblical story up till that point says that he was a rebel, a fighter, someone who was quick to counterattack when he was attacked. That's why he pulled out a sword. And justice was being done to his Lord. But because of Jesus, Peter became a man who loved his enemies, who gives such radical, who writes such radical things. Historians tell us that he actually died shortly after writing this letter. And not because he was a rebel trying to take revenge on the Roman Empire for killing his Lord and Savior. He didn't die in some battle. Historians tell us that he died because he would not turn his back on Jesus. And because he was genuinely intent on helping his former enemies discover life in Jesus. This is part of what gives his word such weight because he is truly a man who was transformed. 
He was transformed from an intense man who fought hard for his own rights, quick to counterattack, quick to go on the offensive, to a man who, like Jesus, loved his enemies. So this is how God calls us to act. But normally, as followers of Jesus, our problem is not knowing in our heads what God is asking of us. Our difficulty as followers of Jesus is actually doing what God calls us to do. It's easy to know in your head. It's quite a different matter to obey Jesus, to follow his example. And Jesus knows that, so he helps us through this passage. He helps us to understand how we can possibly live like this. What gives us the motivation to obey God, even when it goes against everything that our sinful minds want and that the world around us tells us about how we should act when we are wronged. So we're going to spend the next bit of this sermon thinking about the motivation that Jesus gives us to help us to follow his example. In verse 19, Peter gives us the first clue as to how followers of Jesus can bear up under unjust suffering. He says, it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because, because they are conscious of God. And this is one of the reasons why Christians can live this way. It's because we see God as being real and present with us in every situation. The scriptures elsewhere tell us that God is always with us, that the Holy Spirit is with every believer. And when we remember that God is with us at all times, it actually does, truly it does become easier to resist the temptation to strike back when we are mistreated. As a matter of fact, it can, and it really should, become a joy to live in a way that brings glory to our glorious God when we remember that he is beside us. Loving a friend who loves me is normal even in our broken world. But if I love a person who has wronged me, that is not normal. That sets me apart from the people of the world. That declares to everyone around me that I serve a loving and forgiving king. And it also declares to everyone, including myself, by the way, that I am so secure in my eternal destiny that I don't even need to fight for my rights here on earth. This is a real opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus through my actions. So really, when we are wronged, there is reason to celebrate. Because God is giving us an opportunity an opportunity to glorify him, to make much of our savior. So when you feel the adrenaline rising up, when you've been wronged, 
use that adrenaline to glorify God rather than to counterattack the person who has wronged you. Now, it's so important when we talk about this to remember that God is not telling us to seek out suffering on purpose. He's not telling us to try to put ourselves in situations where we will be wronged. Often, it might even be right to leave, to try to leave a situation where we are being wronged. Especially, for example, if a husband is beating his wife or if a boss is stealing from you. The point isn't that we try to seek out suffering or try, always try to remain in situations where we suffer. What Peter is saying is that we need to respond like Jesus when we are wronged. That we are to love those who wrong us. There's more in our passage though. Jesus gives us more motivation because he knows how hard this will be for us to obey. So he, 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 he uh, continues uh, helping us and I'm just gonna read from verse 21 uh, where Peter writes, inspired by Jesus, to this you were called. To, to this you were called. Think about that. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example. These are just amazing words, right? Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And he, he continues, and he, quoting from Isaiah here, he meaning Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he, Jesus, entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And God is not asking us to do anything that he was not willing to do himself. He has gone before us, setting us an example. As a matter of fact, there's an exactly 0% chance that any of us will ever be more unjustly treated than Jesus. He was truly the perfect man, sinless in every way. And yet he was mocked and spat on and whipped and killed in the most gruesome and humiliating way that his enemies had available to them. He, the son of the most powerful being in the universe, did not make any threats when they whipped his back or when they nailed his hands into the cross. We, we, we read in Matthew chapter 26 that he could have so easily stopped the injustice. Jesus said right at the start of his crucifixion experience, he said um, to Peter, actually, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? As the son of the most high God, he was perfectly capable of flipping the situation and killing his tormentors. For example, when they were nailing his hands into the cross. And yet, and yet, this, this is magnificent. Right? He could have done that. 
and yet he chose not to. Verse 23 of our passage, it says what he did instead of flipping the situation, which he was capable of doing. It says, instead of retaliating, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that is to say, Jesus handed the entire situation over to God to resolve justly in his own time rather than choosing to take revenge himself, which he was capable of doing. As a matter of fact, we actually read that Jesus prayed for his enemies as he was hanging on the cross in terrible pain. We read he, he prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. In that moment of terrible pain caused by his enemies who were in front of him, Jesus prayed for them, showing love in response to being wronged. He was so wronged, and here he is loving his enemies. This isn't just some abstract historical fact. Jesus showed love to his enemies. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, that we were his enemies. We aren't saved because we've somehow earned it by our good deeds. We are saved because Jesus chose to love us even while we were still sinners. Even when the ugliness of sin reigned in our lives. We are saved because Jesus loved us enough to die for us while we were still his enemies. We're only being asked to extend to others the same kind of treatment that we have received from Jesus. What's more, as verse 24 of our passage says, Jesus took our sins upon himself so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. Jesus given so much motivation because he knows how hard it is to obey him in this area to follow his example. Jesus died on that cross so that we can be free, as verse 24 says, from living lives that are trapped in endless cycles of miserable and unfulfilling conflict and sin. Jesus died so that we can move past that and embrace a new and radically different life. A life which is characterized by the love of God rather than the anger and selfishness of sin. A life as the restored people of God. Jesus didn't only die so that we can join him in the eternal paradise, in the new creation at the end of time. Although that is a part of what his victory on the cross accomplished. Jesus created a way for us to begin to live, even now, before we die or before he returns, as the people of God of God, to begin the process of restoring not just the vertical relationship that we were designed to have with God, but also the horizontal relationships that we were designed to have with the people around us. Jesus died so that our lives will be radically different from the lives of the people of the world, so that we will bring glory to our glorious God who is so worthy of glory and worship. 
He died so that we can be restored to the bliss and perfection and harmony and peace that we were designed, that humanity was originally designed to experience. That's not the only reason he died. We know that he uh, died to pay the price for our sins, to defeat Satan, to conquer death. But we read in verse 24 of our passage that a major, major motivation of him doing what he did is that we might be freed from slavery to the cycles of sin. Even now, even before we die, even before Jesus comes back, that we might be freed from the chains of sin and enabled to live holy, beautiful, joyful, peaceful lives. Lives which are glorifying to God and joy-bringing and fulfilling to us. Jesus made a way for us to begin to live as humans were always designed to live. He doesn't just want us to be freed from slavery to sin when he dies or when, when he returns. He wants us to experience the joy of his victory over sin now. So magnificent. In a, in a second, we're, we're going to celebrate Jesus' death. Celebrate the fact that he loved us while we were still his enemies by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you loved us so much, even before, b- before we were holy, before, even when we were your enemies, that you would send Jesus to die for us. Father, we just pray that you will help us to grasp with two hands the victory that you have won over sin and death. Father, we pray that you will help us to reflect your goodness, your forgiveness, and your love when we are wronged. Father, we pray that everyone around us, everyone who knows us, will be able to see your goodness reflected in our lives. Father, we pray that when they think of our names, they will think of Jesus. Father, you've done so much for us. We worship you. We glorify you. praise you. We thank you for Jesus, for loving us. Father, we pray that you will allow us, allow our lives to cause others to glorify you, to discover life in Jesus. Amen.